In past years, I have uh, addressed the issues of the doctrine of Scripture and particularly biblical inerrancy and issues of progressive sanctification. Today, I want to go back, because we have so many new folk with us this year, and talk about what we're trying to do and commend in the Twin Lakes Fellowship. What we are, why we do this, what we're after. So first, let me welcome you to the Twin Lakes Fellowship. If you don't know, let me tell you where you are. The Twin Lakes Fellowship is a ministerial fraternal, a ministerial fraternal devoted to the encouragement of gospel ministry and ministers and specifically to the promotion of healthy biblical church planting, both here in North America and on the international mission field. We have been meeting, you may not know this, since 1999. I was looking at notes last night when we gathered in the dining hall in January of 1999 to begin our first planning. This is the 14th official Twin Lakes Fellowship. The Twin Lakes Fellowship is sponsored by the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi, and is under the oversight of our session who provide a very generous budget for it annually so that we're able to offer it to you without charge. But I also want to note that the Twin Lakes Fellowship has always been financially supported and co-promoted by other Presbyterian and Reformed churches, many of whom are represented here today. There are sessions and ministers from churches in Mississippi, Georgia, California and South Carolina this year who have made substantial financial contributions again so that we can offer you the resources that we offer and put on the fellowship without any charge to you. So I want to thank all of those who have partnered with us to do the Twin Lakes Fellowship. Who comes to the Twin Lakes Fellowship? Well, you do. Where do you come from? Well, you come from all over North America, ministers, Elders, church leaders, ministerial candidates, missionaries, but also from parts far flung. Uh, Peru, England, Scotland, elsewhere. The Twin Lakes Fellowship gathers every year designed to pursue a twofold purpose. First, to encourage ministers, churches, presbyteries, networks, and denominations to promote the work of confessional reformed church planting through their local congregations and their larger regional assemblies. Secondly, the Twin Lakes Fellowship is designed to encourage and refresh ministers in grace, not only for God's glory and for their own well-being, but for the sake of gospel work. So to put it another way, the Twin Lakes Fellowship aims to create expand and nurture a ministerial brotherhood across and within denominational lines among Reformed pastors, church planters, missionaries, denominational leaders, seminary professors, and others, all who have shared theological and ecclesiological commitments and vision. Specifically, the Twin Lakes Fellowship is four things. We are robustly reformed, confessional, and inerrantist in our theological commitments. We don't hide that. We don't apologize for that. That's where we are. We're reformed, confessional, and inerrantist. Secondly, we are experiential in the piety or the way of the Christian life that we commend. We know that that's not necessarily the coolest thing going today. We think it's right, though. And so from the very beginning, we have commended a warm, experiential approach to the piety or the way of the Christian life cultivated amongst ministers and congregations. And I think that comes out in the devotional readings, and it very often comes out in the talks and in the sermons that are given at the Twin Lakes Fellowship. Third, we are biblical in our views of ecclesiology and pastoral ministry. That is... (coughs) in a context in which 
uh, pragmatism on the one end and reductionism on the other end have characterized the way that we go about the strategies and planning and implementation of ministry, we have deliberately wanted to be rooted in the scriptures in our approach to the church and pastoral ministry. And then fourth, we are emphatically evangelistic and missionary in our zeal. We believe that those who have the highest view of God's sovereignty are most passionate for souls, or ought to be. And when we are not, it's not our theology's failure. It's our failure to live up to our theology. And so you're going to hear those things commended over and over when we're together. An unofficial motto of the Presbyterian Church in America, and we're not all from the Presbyterian Church in America. One of the great things about the Twin Lakes Fellowship is we have folks from not only the North American Presbyterian and Reformed community and beyond, but we have people from denominations, Presbyterian Reformed denominations around the world and non-Presbyterian denominations. We have had for a number of years Christian and Missionary Alliance attendees. We've had Mennonites. Uh, we've had plenty of Southern Baptists and others. Uh, we are, represent a fairly wide spectrum of denominations. But if I can talk about my own neck of the woods for just a second, an unofficial motto of the Presbyterian Church in America from its very earliest days is true to the Bible, the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. That used to be on the church bulletin in my home church every Sunday morning in the days when Paul Settle, who had been the organizer of the PCA in its very earliest days, was my pastor. And the Twin Lakes Fellowship aims to see that vision realized. I remember telling that motto to Russ Moore, who is now the president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. You may have seen that in the news in the last week. And when I shared that motto with him, he said, that'll preach. <laughs> and I said, indeed it will. But you know what? Sometimes we take that for granted. Uh, if you're part of the Presbyterian and Reformed community, you could, you could glibly pass over that and not realize that you have a treasure in your hands. That your brothers and sisters outside of your denominational and local congregational circles uh, would kill to be able to have in their own uh, setting. So we aim to see that vision realized, true to the Bible, the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission, not only in the PCA, but in faithful biblical churches and church plants all over North America and the world. We want to export the revolution, and uh, that's what we've been about for the last 15 years Together. Furthermore, the purpose of the Twin Lakes Fellowship is positive and spiritual. It's been that way from the very beginning. We have deliberately eschewed a more narrow denominational and certainly a political focus. Over the years, the Presbyterian Church in America and many other Presbyterian and Reformed denominations have had various groups, left, right, and center, who have attempted to organize for denominational activism. Uh, to tell you how to vote, uh, to tell you how to hack the nominations committee, uh, etc. And the Twin Lakes Fellowship has deliberately steered clear of that uh, kind of thing. We are about a positive and spiritual mission. We believe in the truth, and we believe if you get the truth out there, it triumphs. And we've seen that happen. Uh, the Twin Lakes Fellowship has never been about those kinds of uh, ecclesiastical activism. Instead, we have been deliberately positive and didactic. And we've also aimed to be specific in our focus on ministry recruitment, networking, support, and strategy. So the Twin Lakes Fellowship is a ministerial fraternal, and it's a fraternal that includes brethren from the PCA, the ARP, the EPC, the OPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of England and Wales, Southern Baptist Convention, Christian Missionary Alliance, and more. And that ministerial fraternal is concerned to promote some sense of common 
Bonamy. We, we want you to like one another. We want you to know one another. We want you to trust one another. We want you to enjoy being around one another. And we hope that those things will culminate in you working together and spreading the word together. And we want to renew and focus our energy for historic, reformed, confessional theology, worship, and ministry. And that's what the Twin Lakes Fellowship will seek to do in the next 48 hours while promoting positively church health and extension. So what do we do to foster ministerial encouragement? Well, we, we aim to refresh ministers and to glorify God through worship and the ministry of the word. I love to sing with you every year. I love to sit under faithful Bible preaching. We aim to promote a gospel brotherhood in the work of Christian ministry through fellowship. To encourage disheartened brethren every year. Uh, we have some folks that come to Twin Lakes and they're hanging by their last thread. And they're not sure that they can go on. And very often we have found men to be helped in this setting to be able to keep on being faithful in hard charges. And we want to encourage disheartened brethren. We seek to introduce one another to committed men with shared theological vision. Part of the attraction of the Twin Lakes Fellowship is you meeting you. Uh, people finding friendships that they didn't have before they came to the Twin Lakes Fellowship. And those friendships not only becoming fruitful ministerial friendships that encourage you, but they actually end up promoting ministry between churches and uh, various groups. We want to introduce, uh, we want to provide a time of relaxation and recreation. And we want to encourage a pan-Presbyterian and pan-Reformed brotherhood by inviting like-minded men from various Presbyterian and Reformed backgrounds and denominations, both from this region and nation and from around the world. We want to network with other bodies and organizations for mutual edification, encouragement, and stimulation. We want to address critical theological and ecclesiastical issues that are impacting the Reformed and Evangelical community. And we want to promote ministry practices and commitments which are biblical and are reflective of the biblical, reformed, and confessional theology that we hold. So that's what we do to foster ministerial encouragement. What do we do to foster church planning and to encourage this kind of ministry? Well, we, by God's grace, attempt to promote a heart for evangelism, conversion, discipleship, and church planning amongst ministers through, an, through emphasis, exhortation, and example. There have been many men who've come to the Twin Lakes Fellowship in settled charges who've left to go ch plant churches. And that's a glorious thing. We've had many men come to the Twin Lakes Fellowship and leave settled charges to go to the mission field. That's one of the things that we want to see happen. Uh, we want to encourage some gifted pastors to become church planters themselves. And encourage gifted seminarians to consider becoming church planters. And to encourage ordinary means of grace in the gospel ministry of those church plants and planters. We want to bring church planters into direct contact with ministers and elders from potentially supporting churches. And uh, church planters themselves give them the opportunity to report and appeal and instruct as well as to encourage them in their labors. We want to bring potential church planters into direct contact with ministers and elders who are looking for church planters for specific works. We want to bring missionary church planters into direct contact with ministers and elders from potentially supporting churches. Generally, there is at least one missionary church planting ministry represented, and then there will be many North American uh, church planting efforts represented at the Twin Lakes Fellowship. We want to address practical issues regarding the export of historical reform theology and church life in a postmodern, multicultural, and pluralistic society. 
We want to hear from denominational servants and various presbytery spokesmen about current trends and church planning strategies, networks and opportunities. And of course, we want to produce and disseminate good literature and resources, books, pamphlets, video, audio, uh, various other types of Internet distribution in order to foster church health and growth in the work of church planning. So you'll hear us say a number of times over the next 48 hours. One, we aim to be a fellowship rather than just a conference. Now, we'll slip every once in a while and we'll call ourselves a conference. But our goal really is to be a ministerial fraternal. And that means that very often the greatest benefit that you will gain will be in the fraternity, in the fellowship that you enjoy with one another while you're here. We are a fellowship. Secondly, our desire is not to foster a faction, but to nurture a movement. Uh, We want to do gospel, biblical leavening in all of our areas of ministry and influence. Third, we're not just a minister's meeting. We're a ministerial fraternal with a purpose. Uh, There are lots of good ministerial fraternals that you can attend, but we want to have a ministerial fraternal that has a missionary enterprise as its aim. And so our aim is the promotion of church health and growth by the ordinary means of grace. And we want to endorse and encourage a shared vision for theology, life, worship, and ministry. So we're not only against relativism and pragmatism in ministry, we're for confessional and missionary life and ministry. And we don't simply want to be historically rooted. We want to be historically rooted and gospel animated. So you'll hear all of those aspirations in our time together. And I want to, as as we say these words, committed to a uh, a common vision for theology and ministry. I want to I want to articulate specifically twelve things that we want to commend to you, and which you'll hear commended to you over and over in our time together. The first thing we want to commend to you is expository Bible preaching. Now. I, in, in some ways, when I say that here, I am literally preaching to the choir. Uh, because you're probably not at Twin Lakes if you hate expository Bible preaching and think that it needs to be stopped right now. And it is also true that we live in a time of a happy revival of expository Bible preaching. Uh, the amount of material and resources that are available to the seminarian and to the young minister today is significantly greater than the amount of material that would have been available to me and then go back 30 years before that that would have been available to the seminarian and to the young minister in terms of encouraging and helping and cultivating expository Bible ministry. But we want, to, we want to see that continue. And your commitments and your influence is a part of that. And so we want to uh, cultivate a love for expository Bible preaching. Secondly, we want to cultivate a passion for biblical congregational worship. And you'll often hear us say the motto that we've all stolen from Terry Johnson. Sing the Bible, pray the Bible, read the Bible, preach the Bible. It's our motto for the renewal of historic, confessional, reformed worship. And that means several things. It means, first of all, that we want to sing the Bible and biblical truths. This isn't a call to exclusive psalmody as much as we love the psalms. It's not a call to exclusive psalmody. Terry likes to call it inclusive psalmody. Uh, Our goal is to sing rich biblical truth and to see rich biblical truth sung in the churches. Uh, Back in December... 
Keith and Kristen Getty were in Jackson and uh, they did one of their Christmas concerts at First Presbyterian Church on a Wednesday night. And that day, they, they got in early in the morning. That day, Keith asked me if we could go to lunch and we went to a local restaurant and had lunch. And what Keith wanted to talk with me about was hymns. And he didn't, he didn't want to talk with me about new hymns. He wanted to talk with me about old hymns. And what he especially wanted to talk with me about was the loss of old hymns. And he said this. It was very interesting. He said, where our music is popular in the evangelical world, they still sing hymns and songs. Where our music is not popular in the evangelical world, they no longer sing hymns and songs. And here was his question to me. Ligon, what are we going to do to preserve the best of the hymnody of the church? He wasn't talking about new hymns. He was talking about how we preserve old hymns. And he literally spent the whole... I, I sat there eating my salad, listening to him go on for 45 minutes about how we go about preserving the rich biblical hymnody of the church. Well, that was, that was very... Uh, encouraging, frankly, to hear from someone who's one of the most popular writers of new hymn material today. Be concerned for a preservation of historic biblical material for praise. Secondly, when we talk about a passion for congregational worship, we mean congregations that thrive on Lord's Day morning and evening worship. A, a dear friend of mine, uh, just in this last year, came up to me and incredulous. And he said, Ligon, uh, somebody told me that the Twin Lakes Fellowship believes in evening worship. You, you've got to be kidding, right? And I said, um, no. We talk about evening worship. Because we really believe in Lord's Day morning and evening worship. We believe that it's the best discipleship plan in the history of Christianity. And that nobody else has ever become, has ever gotten close to it. And, uh, in our day and age, evening worship as a distinct service of worship from the morning worship has all but disappeared. And what we're wanting to do is stand over in our little corner and say, evening worship is wonderful. And cultivated and commended to you. Sinclair Ferguson recently said to me that those who wish to do away with Lord's Day evening worship betray a fundamental misunderstanding of the theology of Lord's Day experience. And I think he's right. Third, and in connection with that, we want to commend a robust enjoyment of a theology of Lord's Day experience. Uh, we believe that for Protestants, the most important aspect of the church calendar is the weekly Lord's Day. For that is our church calendar as Protestants, the weekly Lord's Day. We believe in a new covenant Lord's Day that corresponds to the weekly Old Covenant Sabbath. And as J.C. Ryle bluntly put it, as a rule, there is in general a flight of steps down from no Sabbath to no God. And we believe that without a Lord's Day, you're actually working for the extinction of Christianity. And uh, one of our informal mottos is this. If Chick-fil-A has a higher view of the Lord's Day than you do, then you need a higher view of the Lord's Day. And uh, we very seriously want to commend a congregation that views the Lord's Day not as something that they have to do, but as the market day of the soul, the best day of the week, the day that they long uh, to come to. Uh, McChain, back in the 19th century, said, a well-spent Sabbath we feel to be a day of heaven upon earth. We love to rise early on that morning and to sit up late 
that we may have a long day with God. And Richard Baxter said, what fitter day to ascend to heaven than on that which he arose from earth and fully triumphed over death and hell. Use your Sabbaths as steps to glory until you have passed them all and are there arrived. And so we want to commend a happy, wholesome embrace of Lord's Day experience. We also want to commend a devotion to biblical doctrine. We live in a day and age where there is a happy and helpful emphasis on narrative and story. But at the same time, an unhelpful opposition of story and doctrine. We want to make sure that the narrative is not in competition with the doctrine, but expresses the truth claims of Scripture. And so we believe that it's quite important for Christian ministers to have a robust embrace of biblical doctrine and to uh, commend it to their congregations. We believe in a warm pastoral piety, and we want to cultivate that. Henry Skugel once said that piety is the life of God in the soul of man. Now, by that, we don't mean that true spirituality is merely soulish or it's disembodied or it's private. But we do mean that in the Bible, true religion flows from the heart out. Evangelicals used to understand that, but you don't have to be a sleuth to detect a marked deficiency of piety in the church and in the ministry of the church in our own time. And so we want to commend that kind of revival of a robust biblical piety. In doing so, our goal is not to get back to the 19th century. We're talking about something that was a part of the Magisterial Reformation. Calvin called his masterpiece not the sum of religion or the sum of theology, but the sum of piety. And so we want to emphasize the importance of the cultivation of a warm heart piety in the ministry of the church. We want to promote family religion in the home. The reformers recognized that they were not going to be able to get daily preaching. You know, you, you find lots of folks today that uh, want to follow Calvin in weekly uh, communion. That's great. I'll give you weekly communion if you'll give me daily preaching. Uh, Calvin wanted seven days a week of preaching. And the reformers soon, in a a couple of decades realized they weren't going to get daily preaching. And so what they did was they attempted to cultivate family religion. And catechizing was their answer to not being able to get daily preaching. And we want to cultivate family worship and catechizing. We also want to cultivate a biblical understanding of the gospel and of evangelism. We live in a day and time in which there has been a happy revival of emphasis on the gospel in the ministry of the church. But very often people are fuzzy about what the gospel is. And we think that if you want to be gospel-centered, it would be good to know and agree upon what the gospel is in ministry. And we think that's a very important aspect of this kind of gospel-embracing uh, movement uh, in our day and age, we want to cultivate a biblical understanding of conversion and discipleship. Uh, we believe that discipleship is vital uh, and to understand discipleship is absolutely essential if we are going to go about the work of the ministry as it's set forth in the word. And knowing what a disciple is 
uh, is actually committed, is, is actually connected to that issue of uh, submission, which I gave you the Calvin quote from. I'm going to wrap around to Hebrews chapter 4 and 5 and show you uh, three or four things from that passage before we conclude today. But we believe that discipleship is a very important issue. We believe that a biblical understanding of growth in grace and Christian obedience and the Christian life is needed in our day and time. Uh, by the way, if you have missed the announcement of the series of articles that David Paulison is doing in the Biblical Counseling Journal on sanctification, do not. Uh, some of the most helpful stuff I've seen already in just the first article, and he's got three or four articles to come, and he's echoing the same kinds of concerns that we would echo. We need a, a robust biblical understanding of growth in grace and Christian obedience and the Christian life. There are lots of slogans that are floating around uh, with regard to sanctification today, and one is that the hard work of sanctification is remembering your justification. But if you check Westminster Confession chapter 13 it, on sanctification, it doesn't say see chapter 11 on justification and remember it. <laughs> sanctification is different from justification, and sanctification is not merely remembering and relearning your justification. And uh, that's something that's very, very important for discipleship and for ministry today. And you'll hear that emphasis from us. We want to have a strong commitment to evangelism, missions, and church extension. Uh, we believe that the best of Protestant missionary Christianity has always believed in the sovereignty of God. But that has faltered in evangelicalism in the last 30 or 40 years. And we want to see a renewal of that emphasis from the Reformed community. We want to cultivate a biblical understanding of church membership and mutual accountability and government in the churches. Um, accountability is a huge thing in our day and time. We live in a day and time where no one wants that kind of commitment, but it's absolutely essential to cultivating healthy Christianity. Healthy Christianity is congregational. That's a Presbyterian saying that. Healthy Christianity is congregational. And you cannot live the Christian life. You can't even pursue sanctification merely individually. It has to be done in a corporate context. We love to talk about community today, but we don't like to talk about accountability and authority. Well, here's the trick. There's no such thing as community without authority. Community that cannot and does not exist without authority. And without accountability or submission to authority, you can't have community. So we believe this is very important. And, of course, we want to cultivate a zeal uh, to live for God's glory in the whole of life and to view all of life as worship and to be a blessing to the nations. All of these things are emphases that you will hear during the Twin Lakes Fellowship. And I just wanted to take time at the outset to explain some of those things. And I invite you to come and ask questions or argue with me or uh, make suggestions uh, afterwards. I would love to talk about these things, especially those of you who are new to us this year. We always have uh, 30 or 40 or 50 new folks at the Twin Lakes Fellowship every year and wanted you to know something of what we're about. Now, as I close this section, we've got a few more minutes. What I'd like to ask you to do is turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. And I want to take you to four verses in Hebrews. We've been working through Hebrews at First Presbyterian Church on Sunday morning. And four verses in particular I want to draw your attention to. Four or five verses, actually. First, Hebrews 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
And then if you look at verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And there are four things in particular that I want to draw your attention to from these verses. Hebrews 4, 15 and then Hebrews 5, 7 to 10. And they all pertain to that theme of submission to God. Let me take you back to Calvin's statement. It is a genuine evidence of true godliness that when plunged into the deepest afflictions, we yet cease not to submit ourselves to God. It's that area that I have been seeing the challenges of Satan to my own heart. And it is that area where I have been seeing many Christians stumble and fall. An inability to submit to God's clear commands when those commands come into contact with our deepest disappointments and our deepest desires. I think that that issue, brothers, is a huge issue for us pastorally in this world today, which is screaming in our people's ears all the time, you deserve to be happy. And it is okay for you to pursue that happiness any way that you can get it. And so in light of that, I just want to point you to four things from this passage that I think greatly helps us in speaking to the issue of submission and God's help to us in these very circumstances. Because I think at least 50% of your pastoral work is in this particular heart area with your people. So here's the first thing that I want you to see. You have a Savior who is sympathetic with your struggle with sin. You have a Savior who is sympathetic with your struggle with sin. Look at Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, if you're like me, you have a hard time really believing that. You have a hard time believing that the depth of your Savior's temptations is as deep as your temptations. And the author of Hebrews is saying that his temptations are deeper than yours, not shallower. So you can never pull a trump card on Jesus and say, but Jesus, you don't understand this temptation. The author of Hebrews is saying you can never say to that, to Jesus, Jesus can relate to your struggle with sin, even when you can't relate to his. Listen to what Raymond Brown says. Jesus' whole life was one of temptation. And the very fact that he had powers and abilities which we do not possess only added to that stress. He was the fullest and most vivid personality that this world has ever known, and the very richness of his human nature exposed him all the more fully to the assaults of temptation. No one on earth before or since has ever been through such spiritual desolation and human anguish. 
For this reason, he can help us in our moments of temptation. He is a needs because he experienced to the full the pressures and testings of life in this godless world. Can you imagine that Jesus actually experienced the temptation to abandon the mission which God had sent him on? And you remember him saying to his disciples once, it is my food to do the will of him who sent me. But how do you hear him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What do you mean, Jesus? You came to drink the cup. You have a Savior who is sympathetic and he understands your struggle with sin. This is very important for fighting this battle. Secondly, you have a Savior that understands submission to the will of God. Look at Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now, I want to stop right there. The last phrase in verse 7, you could meditate upon for the rest of your life and never understand it to the bottom. But I just want you to stop right there in verse 7 and take that in. With loud cries and tears, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. And, and notice how the one to whom he is prayed, praying is denominated here. Not to his Father, not to God. But to him who was able to save him from death. Isn't that an interesting phrase to use in Hebrews 5, 7? He was praying to him who was able to save him from death. And he didn't. Jesus was praying to him who was able to save him from death. And he did not save him from death. You have a Savior that understands submission to the will of God. He says, Father, if possible, let this cup pass. And the answer is no. You know, you may, you may say, Ligon, you just don't understand what it's like not to be able to have the thing that I want the most. Or, Leon, you don't understand what it's like to have the thing that I least want to have. This is the battle of the desires. And the question is, in that moment, are you going to submit yourself to God? And here's the honest truth. I may not know what it's like for you not to have the thing that you want the most or to have the thing that you least want to have. But Jesus does. Because he has prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me to the one who is able to save his soul from death. And he has received the answer, no. And just take in for a moment, I mean, just think, I mean, just, it, it's mind-boggling to think about the interactions of the persons of the Trinity in that prayer. But just take this in for a moment. Jesus knows what that cup is in ways that you and I do not know now and never will know. So he has good reason for praying what he's praying. But the answer is still no. You have a Savior that understands submission to the will of God. Third, you have a Savior that understands suffering and the fruit that it produces. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered.
That's an amazing statement to make about Jesus. The statement does not suggest that there was any imperfection in Jesus' obedience at any point, morally speaking. But it does, especially when coupled with the next phrase, look at verse 9, and being made perfect, it does indicate that there is a compounding and a completion to the totality, to the comprehensiveness of his obedience on our behalf that could not come until he had completed his course. It's not that he went from imperfect to perfect. It's that he went from partial to total. That he comprehensively fulfilled. It's the same language in Philippians 2, isn't it? That he was obedient unto death, all the way up to and including death. This is active and passive, penal and preceptive obedience. And it's passive obedience experienced not just at the cross, but all the way up to and including the cross. And it's preceptive obedience all the way up to and including the cross. And in it he learned obedience through what he suffered. You know, our generation doesn't believe in didactic suffering. It believes in the avoidance of suffering at all costs. And the irony is it has plunged them into a tendency to believe in meaningless suffering. And their response to that is to be angry at God. But notice that Hebrews 5.8 Reminds us again that there is no such thing as meaningless suffering for the believer. And that God always has purposes in suffering. Even and especially for his son. And I think this is something very important when you're helping someone wrestle with submission to the will of God. Just this last week, one of the women in our Bible studies gave birth to a child. The doctors had already told her would live for a matter of minutes and would die. They had encouraged her and her husband to abort the child. They refused to do so. She carried the child to term, and within an hour he was dead. Is that meaningless? Is it capricious? Is it cruel? Hebrews 5.8 says no. It was not meaningless, capricious, or cruel. If Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, is it at all surprising that we would? Is it at all surprising that we would? Fourth and finally, you have a Savior who understands the connection between salvation and sanctification. Being made perfect, verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Isn't that an interesting phrase? You're not ready for that if... if, uh, If Martin Luther's writing that, it's uh, to all who believe in him. Now, did Norman Shepard sneak that in uh, to the text of Hebrews 5? Look, it goes right back to the Great Commission, doesn't it? Make disciples, teaching them to assent to all the things that I have taught them. Teaching them to believe. In all the things that I've... No, 
teaching them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded. And listen to this. The result of his perfection was that he became the eternal source of salvation to all who obey him. This is a way of describing Christians. These are the kinds of disciples that Jesus' death makes. Disciples who obey him. And one of the greatest parts of obedience is submitting to the will of God when you have no idea what he is doing or why. And you may never. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, as we minister in a day and age that hates submission... And as our own hearts wrestle with unfulfilled desires that make us willing sometimes almost to abandon you just so we can get those desires fulfilled. Or so that we can get relief from the pain. Teach us submission to God. By the sympathetic, suffering, submitting, sanctifying Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your notebook and turn to hymn 305, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Let's stand together as we sing.